You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Once again, this is your host, Maddie, uh, joined as usual by my co-host, Jesse. Hey, guys. <laughs> she's, wa- she, she's waving enthusiastically. I always do that. <laughs> <laughs> she waves enthusiastically, even though nobody can see. But, um, <laughs> you know, we could just see each other, and that's what's important. So tonight we are joined by Dr. Mary Ruart. And so if you do not know that name yet, I'm very sorry that you've been missing out on... Um, Uh, I think a really important voice and someone who is saying things and asking questions and maybe you've never gotten um, the sufficient amount of spotlight that you should have. But, you know, there's always, there's always the future (laughs) if you so wish to stand out and said spotlight, but I know, um, you know, it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Yeah, it can be very um, challenging. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Ruart, I, I'm kind of, um, and again, I was just a little bit ignorant about this, but your background is fairly varied, and I didn't realize just how much our worlds kind of maybe a little bit intersect. And so you are... You were, or actually, I don't know how, um, I've got the bio on the back of uh, Death by Regulation. And so are you currently still a biomedical researcher and ethicist? Um, what are you kind of currently doing these days, just since the world seems to have been turned on its head? And I, I'd be very curious <laughs> to know what you've been doing. Well, I still consult in the biomedical research area. I chair a board, uh, an ethical review board, and what we do is we look at uh, the studies and the informed consents that people get when they enter a drug study. So we are supposed to let people know that they can quit at any time, for example, and other things like that. And I do that on a regular basis. I also do a little bit of expert witnessing, depending on the situation. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, I've, I've written legal briefs. I've actually appeared in court, things like that. That's probably, I spent a little less time doing that. And then, of course, I chair uh, the nonprofit Liberty International, which used to be the International Society for Individual Liberty. And actually, I learned about libertarianism from the trifold pamphlets that we got from the International Society for Individual Liberty, but we had to change our name because it had the acronym ISIL. Oh, and, no. <laughs> <ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
several times and finally said, no, we got to change our name. Um, and of course, it was hacked by people who thought we were something very much different than what we were, which is very sad. Mm. But now what we're doing is we're trying to resurrect those trifold pamphlets, not just in written form, but in video form. So, you know, because that's the popular um, medium today. Mm -hmm. So I hope other uh, young libertarians will, like I, uh, learn about the principles and the application of the principles for different issues through these upcoming pamphlets or these video pamphlets, as we call them. Well, that is exciting. Um, yeah. And actually, so that kind of, um, I always wonder if we ever get the opportunity to go through these stories and, you know, forgive me listeners and forgive me, Dr. Ruart, if this is um, sort of something you've gone over before and maybe too many times, but I love hearing people's origin stories. And, you know, I, I think um, even though it doesn't seem to be so distant from the ideas and principles of liberty, uh, I like I work um, with expert witnesses myself. And so in the in a lot of toxic tort litigation. And so it's been an interesting year, to say the least, in terms of uh, attitudes I've seen and um, witnessed and was not really as prepared as I think I should have been. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I was, um, I was a bio major in college. Jesse's a nurse um, and has a mental health background. So, we, but we do find ourselves mm -hmm. in the minority, you know, <laughs> like um, in this scientific, especially like, you know, all these, crazy modern day feminists, like celebrating the fact that we've got STEM jobs, right? Like, and I'm just <laughs> like, I, I really don't care. Like I like science and um, nobody pressured me to be in this position, but I, I've, we felt, um, Jesse and I've both felt pretty alone in uh, this sphere, um, having the ideas we have. And, you know, I, you've been, <laughs> you've been dealing with this longer than we have for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends if you're talking about being a woman in science or if you're talking about the COVID stuff and being in science and watching. I mean, it's really hard to watch what's happening in the medical journals today, because if you, you know, read the medical journals, uh, you get, well, I think the biggest example I had was, you know, you, you see an article on all of the excess deaths that are caused by people having heart attacks at home and not coming into the hospital. So that's up like anywhere from depending on whose numbers you look at about 30% and cancer patients aren't getting their treatments. How do you calculate that? More suicides, a lot of depression. Um, and then just a couple of months later, you read in the medical journal that excess deaths, oh my goodness, we must have undercounted COVID. These excess deaths are clearly all due to COVID. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and oh it's like God. they didn't read the paper that was published in the same uh, two months ago. So it, it's very, uh, very disillusioning. And, um, you know, they've had to pull some major papers. Of, I'm sorry, I should say papers from major journals off because it was totally fabricated. So there's a lot of, <laughs> mm -hmm. a lot of crazy stuff going on. Uh, to say the least, actually, and you might be the person who knows this answer directly and, and know what I'm talking about. So um, 
the drug that's been around for a long time and it starts with the letter H and Orange Man Bad was promoting it or just period mentioning it early on. You know, who knows what that guy was doing half the time or saying half the time. He didn't. Um, but so I remember, you know, all of a sudden there were, I think, two prominent journal articles that came out and, you know, had to declare the H drug, um, you know, dangerous. And I, I, I don't even know. I guess like they declared it also ineffective, but definitely dangerous, too dangerous to bother. And I guess more dangerous than COVID. <laughs> I don't know. Like it's, it's funny how people have been prioritizing things differently uh, throughout the past year and it goes on today. Um, but so I know one of those journals, the very, the very prominent um, journal, the Lancet, I know that article has been retracted since publication because it was crap. But what yes. was, and so wasn't there another article? There was one that used uh, really toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Um, I don't know which IRB, Ethical Review Board, which mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, ever approved that study. Because one of the things we look at is, you know, especially for a marketed drug, is it being given appropriately? Mm -hmm. So you have the product insert, right? So you read it. I mean, you're supposed to read it. <laughs> I don't know how that study got approved at those toxic doses. So, you know, it's just crazy. Um, and this is the kind of crazy stuff that's been going on. Now, the reason I think that that happened, and ivermectin, of course, got the same kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. it, I, you can't get an emergency use, use authorization for a vaccine if there is a cure or a treatment, effective treatments. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of a lot of pressure to make sure there wasn't an effective treatment because there was this big push to get vaccines. And part of that, from what I understand, is that uh, Dr. Fauci actually um, has uh, a conflict of interest there because he actually has proprietary interest in one of the vaccine patents. Um, I haven't researched this in great detail, but there's a number of books coming out now about this. And uh, probably the most, um, I would say probably the most prominent author would be Robert Kennedy Jr. His book mm -hmm. is coming out, I think, in the next month, if I'm not mistaken. And um, there's a number of other ones that are coming out as well. And there may even be some that have come out already. I haven't yeah. been able to read everything, but <laughs> it's hard to keep I up. Understand, you know, if if a principal investigator of a study had that kind of conflict of interest, it has to be reported to the people who are in the study. And yet here we have a very influential uh, bureaucrat, I guess maybe is the proper word. It's a nice a, way. <laughs> it's a nice word for him. This huge conflict of interest that never really gets discussed. And um, I just, like I said, it's very disappointing to see this level of, um, of, I don't want to say ignorance, because it isn't ignorance. There's just been a lot of, um, of I guess you could really say, um, you know, uh, different organizations <laughs> trying to suppress the truth under, or at least um, discussing and debate under the moniker of misinformation. Mm -hmm. And this has been very disappointing to me as a scientist, where what you want to do, of course, is you want to consider all things and bat it around and, 
the quote winner is the one that has the most proof and we aren't doing that you know we have no long-term safety studies on this vaccine yet we've given it to what we would call vulnerable populations when we review a study we have to think about vulnerable populations like pregnant women children and we have to have special protections in there for them there's nothing going on um, with this vaccine in that realm. And that's very scary. You know, in mm -hmm. fact, I, I've been contemplating writing a book called Is Regulation Ethical? And this whole COVID thing is <laughs> giving me so many examples. My my head is swirling, you know. I, I'll, have to, I'll have to be careful to try to pick out things. There's just so many unethical things going on right now. I think um, somebody like you, if not you, I that book needs to be written. I mean, there's been a few people that I've, that have had very prominent and I think um, like the proper credentials to discuss this and to really report what's been happening. And, and I know like a lot of lay people are really trying to do their best and they've done great jobs too. And, and, you know, they've found um, good people to follow, but you know, your, your voice would, would, I think, mean a lot. And so I know you probably can't write fast enough. Like you said, there's just so many example <laughs> after example, every single day, it's something new. And it's like, here's how we handle viruses and clown world. And, you know, people, so it's interesting. I was thinking about it, um, that, you know, so people like us, you know, libertarians or, you know, depending on how far away from libertarian you might be or consider yourself voluntarist, anarchist, basically we are proponents of a stateless or an almost state-free society. And, you know, we, there's um, utilitarian arguments um, where it's more like, well, the government's just really not good at this. And so we should leave it to the free market because the free market is better um, effectively. Whereas, you know, there's also the moral argument where like these murderous thugs, um, you know, really should have nothing to do with our intimate decisions in our lives, like the FDA, this unauthorized, unconstitutional, if, if like, if you care so much about the Constitution, this thing shouldn't exist, right? Um, but these people, and again, it's just Food and Drug Administration. So that's another whole story, like the fact that they combine food and drugs, like pharmaceutical <laughs> drugs together. I, I, ew. I mean, not that I want another bureaucracy. Don't get me wrong. We don't need two. Um, but it's like, you know, they, their job is to, I don't know. I think like based on as far as I got in your book, it's like, they kind of make themselves really important. Um, I think it's a lot of job security. Um, and so somebody who's a statist might say, or who's maybe in certain um, lines of like going down the Liberty rabbit hole with us, right? And so they might agree that maybe the Department of Education shouldn't exist. Or, you know, maybe just the idea that perhaps private schools are better than a government run school. Um, but then there's still people that cling on to things like certain regulatory bodies like the FDA. Like, obviously we need them to keep us safe, right? Well, actually, 
it's very interesting because in 1962, the FDA got its teeth, so to speak, and it got it in such a way that it metastasizes every year. And now, uh, you know, instead of taking four years for a drug to get from the lab bench to the marketplace, by the turn of the century, it was taking about 14 years, which is 10 years more <laughs> than it used to. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any increased safety uh, from that. The number of drugs, or the, I should say the percentage of drugs that were withdrawn from the market for safety reasons was about 2.5% before these 1962 amendments were passed. Mm -hmm. After that, it was 3.3%. In other words, it went in the wrong direction. <laughs> and yeah, the reason for that is that the reason any drug gets to market with safety mm -hmm. problems is because our science just isn't good enough to detect them all. So there will always be a small percentage that will come to the market. And then once people with different genetic backgrounds take it, different, you know, uh, pre-existing conditions, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we'll find that these more vulnerable populations, if you want to think of them that way, are going to have problems. And that's not something you can predict from animal studies or even limited clinical trials. And I say limited because you know, even even the most elaborate studies really have a few thousand people. That's very different than millions of people who might take, what we, you know, what, what would be a very popular drug like statins or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's unrealistic at this stage in scientific development to think we're going to get away without any safety problems at all. And so now what we're seeing is overkill because if you take 14 years to get a drug to market, a lot of people are going to die waiting. And in fact, if you, you can make a calculation, a guesstimate based on published data as to how many lives today's drugs save, and you can see that about 15 million lives were lost just in that waiting period um, since 1962, which is more, more lives lost than we've had in all the wars, including the American Revolution from the country's inception. And wow. then, of course, if the companies are spending their money with this extra 10 years of studies, they're not developing new drugs. So what that means is innovation is slashed. Uh, the studies yeah. show at least 50 percent, uh, probably more like 80 percent, because those studies only look at drugs that drop out after they've spent a lot of money on them, you know, what we call late phase development. So if you, if you figure that, but if you figure conservatively that only 50% of the innovations lost and those drugs that are lost would only be 25% as effective as the drugs on the market today, that's another 27 million people. In other words, so another way of looking at it is each of us have lost five to 10 years of our lives from the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act. Now, that's not counting what may have happened before, <laughs> but just those regulations that were passed in 1962 have caused us each to lose five to 10 years of our lives. The five is something you can demonstrate pretty easily. The 10 is my guesstimate based on the fact that it shifted us from prevention to treatment only. And that was probably, it's probably more than five years, but I'm trying to be conservative. <laughs> yeah, I think um, what you just said 
is a huge, huge point. And I think it, we, we are living in <laughs> the ramp, yeah. like the consequences of that. The fact that you said it's shifted things to treatment as opposed to prevention. So for example, all this year, it was, we need a cure. And the only way to prevent it was the non-pharmaceutical interventions of locking yourself down, regardless of health status, whatsoever, and staying away from people and wearing a gross cloth thing over your face, over your a vulnerable part of your body, the entryway, <laughs> entryway to everything that keeps you running and alive. And so again, you know, like they're, maybe they just weren't even used to like how to recommend preventative measures anymore because everybody's been focused on treatment. I mean, that's a really generous way to put it, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's really sad, actually. You know, we had to develop drugs, new drugs, which actually we would take a vitamin or a natural therapy that, of course, we couldn't, we could market it, but we couldn't make any claims for it. So in order to make a therapeutic claim for a drug, we had to take a natural compound and tweak it chemically so we could get a patent because if you're spending 14 years getting a drug to market, you know, unless you have a patent, uh, you're not going to even recoup Mm-hmm. Cost. In fact, only two to three out of every 10 drugs do that. So the whole industry is now based on what we call blockbuster drugs. And if mm-hmm. you fail to have a blockbuster, then you're toast, basically. So it's, it's not stable and uh, we're, not getting, we're not getting the best drugs we could have. We and the whole industry is really, uh, I'm sorry, the whole agency, the FDA agency has been co-opted by the industry. Uh, that happened in 1992 with the user fees that the FDA started charging the drug companies. In other words, if you wanted to get your drug approved rapidly, oh. you need a fee so the FDA could hire more people to look at it quickly. That went from $100,000 in 92 to uh, very close to $3 million today. So like 50% to 70% of the salaries of the people who evaluate new drugs is now paid for by the user fees. Consequently, the FDA, this has been stated uh, during the debates about whether Vioxx should be approved, the FDA has stated that their client is the pharmaceutical industry, not the American public, not Congress, because of course, that's where they're getting their money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that Vioxx was approved, even though certain FDA examiners said, this drug could be dangerous, you know, it could cause heart attacks. And of course it did. It's probably the most dangerous drug that was ever put on the American market. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know about that. The user fees. I mean, it really is. It's a buy-in. Yeah. And yeah. it keeps out competition. Yeah. It's other, protectionism. So you can't have a new pharmaceutical company with new ideas come into the market as easily. Well, that's right. What they have to do is the young startup biotechs that find something wonderful. They have a really hard time getting through the FDA. The FDA doesn't trust them. So what they end up usually doing, and there have been exceptions, but usually what they have to do is license their product to a big pharmaceutical firm, one of the giants, so that they can get through the FDA because they're used to working with the FDA. They know the nuances and how to how to handle it, you know, so that's, and that's why a lot of 
big pharma companies hire people from the FDA because they figure, okay, there's contacts. These people know what the FDA expects. You know, maybe we can actually get something done. When I first joined uh, the Upjohn company in the mid seventies, my biggest aha moment was saying to myself, how do these drugs ever make it to the market? when the FDA is so fickle about what it wants from us. And even, even in one instance where the FDA actually called me up and got really excited about this prostaglandin for liver disease that I was working about and said, we're gonna help you get this to market. Even then, it doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because they have to obey their own rules. At that time, it was getting two US studies that showed certain statistical significance. And you know, when you have a new drug, you don't know how much you have to give. You don't know how long you have to give it. You don't know how often you have to give it, once, twice, three times a day. And in the case of liver disease, uh, it's actually pretty hard to measure how effective it is because the liver is not uniformly damaged in most liver disease, you know, it's kind of spotty. <laughs> so we had to figure out new ways to look at the liver. This is way before we had all this scanning technology, right? So what, what happened is we realized that if we didn't guess right on each of these parameters, the very first clinical study or human study that we did and get the statistical significance that the FDA wanted, if we had to repeat those studies, our drug would be off patent by the time we got to the marketplace. And so, you know, the management said we can't develop this drug. And it's really too bad because similar drugs were put on the market and um, they seemed to be useful, but because of the patent we had, <laughs> they couldn't develop them for that easily, you know, without licensing our patent. So, you know, the whole system, this whole patent thing, it's not what most libertarians think of as intellectual property. I learned that too. And, and getting a patent, I mean, chemical patents are easier, but there are different kinds of patents and some of them really are just, it, it, there's some gamesmanship involved. Let me just say that. Yeah. And it's hard to tell, you know, where one idea stops and another one starts because it's not easy to tell if the um, the new thing you're working on is patentable because it's not obvious. That's the criteria. Is it obvious from current you know state of the art? Then if it is obvious, then you don't get the patent. If it's not obvious, then you get the patent. And who says whether it's obvious or not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's really hard. Yeah, it's not like I said. It's not clear cut at all in the in the patent uh, world and. I suspect that if we didn't have a 14-year development program, if it was back at four years, uh, there would probably be patents, but yeah, you know, you wouldn't have to have them. In fact, we didn't have them at Upjohn a lot of times until, until these regulations kicked in. You know, they, then they really didn't kick in in our area till the 70s. So I watched as the company finally said, no more drugs without patents. I was there when that happened. And, and that's pretty sad because a lot of the a lot of the things without patents were things that were useful, and and if we could have made a, a therapeutic claim for them, it would have been great. I've got a question, um, especially since you've done some expert witness work, and 
I know from my experience that like generally like the idea is you can't sue the government. Um, I guess like to your knowledge, like can the FDA be sued? Um, you're no, because you know, there's, <laughs> basically they have sovereign immunity. So if they withhold a drug that, um, and they've actually done this, withhold a drug that eventually is shown to save lives and the particular disease that people wanted to use it, you can't sue them. And, and um, that's really too bad because if you could, <laughs> I think drugs would be more readily available. You know, and, and when I say drugs, I'm going to just include natural substances in that mm -hmm. as well. You know, the prostaglandins we were working are natural substances. Every cell in your body makes them. But you know, if we wanted to have them stay in the body longer, and of course, mm -hmm. if we wanted to get through the development program and actually be able to fund it, we did have to have a patent. So we had to tweak it chemically to get that. So the FDA is immune to the mm -hmm. liability, I guess, right? And yes, even, even though, um, like you point out in your book, like they kind of made themselves the scapegoat, but coincidentally or conveniently for them, nothing really bad is gonna happen to them, except maybe a bureaucrat gets fired. If that, maybe, maybe. and he, he'll get fired with a nice pension, you know, um, something that I'll never see, you know, unless I make it for myself. But um, so I guess like, uh, there's one saving grace though, you know, all of us are affected by the FDA, the president, Congress, the FDA examiners themselves. And, you know, sometimes the FDA examiners find that out. There was one fellow who was uh, instrumental in approving cancer drugs, and he didn't want to approve them unless it extended life. It didn't matter if the suffering was decreased. It didn't matter if the tumor got smaller. He mm -hmm. didn't want to approve it until he saw lifetime studies, which, of course, take a long time. So then his wife got cancer. Hmm. He wanted to enroll her in some clinical trials and get her you know, new drugs and found out how hard it is. So he did a total turnaround, and in his own words, he started a jihad to get drugs, cancer drugs, out quickly. Now, what that meant for him, you know, they only have so much control because they've got to meet these criteria, right? So he was able to shave a month off, <laughs> off of the, you know, long time, but which today is a little shorter because the business about getting the user fees did allow them to hire more people and cut, cut it down from 14 years to 13 years, but they're increasing studies still. So I don't know what the, you know, what it will look like from, uh, you know, 2010 to 2020. Those data aren't in yet, but I suspect it's going up again. Anyhow, so he tried to do that and, and changed his whole outlook because he saw firsthand what the problem was when you can't get access to drugs. Unfortunately, this is not the usual thing that happens at the FDA. Although I have given my presentation, uh, similar to my book, um, in front of pretty high echelon FDA people. And it's interesting, the people at the top kind of know this, but the people at the bottom, this like deer in the headlights, they can't imagine that you can be too careful and that that could have a problem. You know, it, It's really interesting. 
But the people at the shop kind of know that, but what can they do about it? Because, you know, you'll, you've seen in the, in the, um, you know, in the news, when a new drug is approved, uh, it doesn't matter what's gone on. There are a lot of complaints. Oh, the FDA approved it too fast, <laughs> or the FDA approved it too slow. I mean, they get hit on both sides. So yes. I can empathize somewhat to where they are, but of course they shouldn't be in that position in the first place. Exactly. They should. Yes, sure. Anybody can make a recommendation whether somebody should take a drug or not, but it should be up to the patient and the doctor, you know. Mm -hmm. That's that's really who it should be up to. It shouldn't be up to a, an agency. Yep. Sometimes, I mean, as a nurse, I just feel like a lot of times doctors don't even really know how, how drugs affect patients either. So I, I wonder how much... Um, I don't know. I just wonder how much doctors really spend the time looking at these new drugs and seeing how, seeing the, the studies that are done on them, you know? Yeah. Well, they don't because, I mean, they really have very limited time. I mean, you know, nurses and doctors are working very hard. Part of that is because of the licensing requirements. Yeah. <laughs> it, it limits the number of people that actually, you know, be in practice. And so they, you know, they're really hurting for time. So, of course, they don't get more education generally, unless, of course, the licensing laws make them. And there is a big move right now uh, that that the medical boards are trying to, you know, um, trying to dictate standard practice. What is the standard of care? And if, if a physician or another healthcare practitioner goes outside that standard of care, even if it helps people, they come down on them. I've, I've done some of my expert witness work against medical boards, you know, mm -hmm. because they want to take that privilege away from doctors. Doctors can do things, they can innovate in the practice of medicine. And what this is meant for surgery is that we've had a lot of breakthroughs in surgery that we probably wouldn't have had if they had to go through the FDA process. But essentially, the medical boards are starting to act like a mini FDA on medical practice. So we're going to start losing innovation in medical practice. In fact, we mm -hmm. already are. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the FDA is also creeping up and trying to claim that our own cells are drugs. For example, um, you know, stem cell research is getting really hot. And what they, uh, they started doing is taking your own blood, isolating the stem cells, injecting them back into your knee or wherever you need them. Okay, cool. But some people don't respond, especially the elderly or diabetics uh, to that. There's not enough stem cells. So what they were doing is growing them up for mm -hmm. a week and putting enough in to have a good result. Well, the FDA said, well, if you give the stem cells the same day you harvest them, that's okay. That's medical practice. But if you grow them up for a week, then it's a drug and you have to go through the process. <laughs> mm -hmm. And of course that's driven, driven all that offshore. Yeah, we did that in our hospital when I was in oncology. We did stem cell replacement therapy for our cancer patients. And then all of a sudden, one day it just stopped. So I wonder if that's the reason why, but I just can only imagine how many patients now are missing out because of yeah. that. 
I'm trying to think exactly. It's in my book what when that case came down. I think it was about, I'm not very good at time, but four or five years ago. I mean, it's, it's yeah. fairly recent. Yeah, I think, that's, I think I left oncology about six or seven years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, just so, so disheartening. Um, <laughs> they're not our friends. They're no. not, not, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know. Again, it goes back to like people thinking that these people must have our best interests at heart, even though name any other category and they're not. Um, and all right. So maybe like timeline wise, um, cause I also saw something that interested me in your book was that you, and maybe, you know, wasn't too involved, but, um, you mentioned that even you were working on potential AIDS treatments. So mm -hmm. like you were already on the scene and in that work during the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't be the first one to say this, but there are a lot of uh, parallels I think going on with um, what I, I wasn't alive, but um, what I've heard from the time of the AIDS crisis and, and things that we've sort of uh, witnessed and experienced this year. Is there anything that, st anything that stands out for you? Yeah, you know, the AIDS patients quickly realized they couldn't wait 14 years. <laughs> so what they did is they hired black market chemists to make the drugs that we were working on in the industry, and they made them and distributed them throughout the AIDS community. Now, everyone knew this was going on. But the FDA chose not to prosecute the ones in California because they were so well connected to the press. Mm. Now, in Texas, this wasn't the case, which is why if you watch the movie, the award-winning movie, Dallas mm -hmm. Buyers Club, you saw that the FDA prosecuted and persecuted these very sick people who actually outlived the predictions of their physicians by taking certain vitamins, uh, importing drugs from overseas, and of course, taking um, these therapies that were being worked on in the industry. And they did it pretty safely, in my opinion. Um, you know, they always tried to tell people and the doctors who were working with them, you know, here's what we know about the side effects. Uh -huh. And so by the time the FDA finally gave us permission to put our drugs in AIDS patients, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted our drugs had already had them and were resistant. So we had to wait for new people to be diagnosed in order to do the FDA mandated studies, which is really crazy when you think about it. And, and this sick and demented. This wealth of information that we could have gotten from the the community, the AIDS community, you know, mm -hmm. was basically because you know it was illegal. So. Wow. I mean, like you said, um, it kind of uh, drove this to drove people to have to utilize the black market. And just like any other form of prohibition, I mean, you know, it just is convenient that the word drug is still involved here. And, you know, it's not just the street drugs that um, had to and still probably do in some cases, you know, depending on what the needs. Um, it's not just street drugs that end up in the black markets. It's, you know, life-saving cures or even just, uh, you know, it's not 
<laughs> black market, it's automatically like a negative connotation, right? But really, truly, it's it's an alternative market. It's, and um, I think maybe that's like agorism, <laughs> like just promoting um, these alternate, alternate, ugh, alternative markets because we have to. Mm-hmm. Well, think about what's going on with NAC right now. You can't get it over the counter anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I've still been able to get it. But yeah, you're right. They're trying to you're, clamp down. Yeah, it's harder to, but I've been able to get some too. So yeah. yeah. Well, um, see, here's the thing. When, when, when there's a company, a pharmaceutical company that says they're going to they're working on this particular nutrient, even if it's a natural product, or they're going to look at something very similar. They can go to the FDA and say, hey, you know, we're working on this and, you know, it's going to be a drug. So we don't think people should sell it, you know, over the counter. And, and that's basically what the FDA is doing. You know, there are certain drugs or certain, I'm sorry, certain nutrients that are protected um, um, from the FDA's uh, jurisdiction, I guess. But if they if they came out on the market after a certain year, then they aren't. And so this is this is how the FDA is trying to clamp down on nutrients. And you know this is really harmful when you think about it because these are products that our body makes. We need them, and because we're all different genetically, and because we really don't sometimes understand how certain environmental things or things that we eat influence those, um, the, our, the ability, I should say, of our body to make those products. Um, it's very useful to have them. And if we don't have them, we're going to have a very much shortened life. You know, some people will really be harmed by not having them. So this is part of the, this is part of that whole shift in from prevention to treatment that we were talking about earlier. And this is an area where libertarians really could bring in a lot more people because people who take supplements, and now we're talking, you know, at over half the population and, and serious supplement takers are, oh, I don't know, I really haven't seen any studies, but I would guess that it's pretty large, maybe as much as 20% of the population. Um, you know, these people understand that the FDA is trying to prevent them from getting their nutrients, and they don't like that a bit. In fact, Congress, two different times when the FDA tried to regulate supplements, got more mail and more emails <laughs> from the public than on any other issue. So this is a hot issue, and libertarians should pay attention to this because actually it was a couple libertarians from Life Extension Foundation that were the first big winners against the FDA. The, um, I mean, their lawyers said, go to prison, you know, you don't have a choice, try to negotiate a deal. Well, they said no, no way. They fought for eight years and they got all the charges dropped. And uh, if they hadn't, then we wouldn't have coenzyme Q on the market, which is a natural product your body makes. And actually, mm -hmm. it, you know, smart doctors prescribe it for any of their patients that are taking statins because it helps to alleviate the side effects of statins. Mm -hmm. So libertarians are, all, are already involved, but we haven't brought these people in to our movement very much, you know, and they get it on one issue. They really get it. So, you know, 
one, if they get it on one issue, uh, they can get it on others. So, and they're very active, they're activists, you know, they're not people that just sit back and do nothing. So this is where, uh, you know, I think we could focus a lot of attention and bring people in. And the COVID situation has made this even more prominent because there's actually a lot of things that you could do to prevent yourself from getting COVID. You know, uh, have a high vitamin D level, take melatonin, which blocks the ability of the virus to, <laughs> you know, get in. So there's a lot of things. And of course, I could go on and on. But I mean, basically having a healthy immune system, which you can tweak in different ways is is also helpful. So, but I just mentioned a couple things. And then, of course, really, uh, the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin uh, protocols are pretty simple and inexpensive and something to have on hand. So again, this isn't talked about a lot because the uh, misinformation police, the censorship police have tried to block all this uh, so the vaccine could be promoted. But now we're having children having heart damage from these vaccines and children really don't have much risk from COVID. So. Now the, and children are a vulnerable population. We never should be giving an experimental vaccine. No. Probably not even some of our FDA approved vaccines uh, mm -hmm. to children. Uh, the current schedule is what, 72 uh, vaccines before the child is eight years old. I mean, I wouldn't take that many as an adult. I would be afraid, <laughs> very afraid. that The fact that we give children with an immune system that's not fully developed it is really scary. Exactly. I mean, there are ethical considerations here. Again, you see, libertarians are true ethicists, really, and I, I promote that uh, idea to libertarians. You know, we should bill ourselves as ethicists. We ask the tough questions. We don't, we don't say how much regulation should we have. We say, should we have regulation at all? I mean, we don't, we don't play around. You know, <laughs> we get right to the matter. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And um, I think, you know, uh, another benefit to this year, because there aren't many, of course, but as we've said on previous uh, podcasts and recordings of ours, we have found um, a different, like, group of people that we might not have connected with before. And it's like, but if you happen to connect on what really is like the most important issue and the idea of health and medical freedom and body sovereignty and individual choices and, you know, respecting the things that you and your doctor might care about. And hopefully your doctor like isn't either uninformed or, you know, I don't know, too disinterested for some reason to have these difficult conversations with you too. I mean, I don't have a doctor. Like <laughs> I, it's something that I, I would trust somebody in that position. And so I have no, I have no one right now. Um, mm -hmm. I did find, and I sought out a functional medicine doctor that I hope, you know, it's, a, I hope it's a success. Um, I'll see her soon, but you know, again, it kind of goes like, all right, well, what's your answer to this one question? And then uh, <laughs> we are either cool or we're not cool. Cause my life, my health is too important to put in somebody else's hands. And that's I right. think like that's so much of what, um, you know, us as libertarians believe in anyway. And it's just like the fact that 
libertarians weren't really uh, a lot of libertarians weren't very good on um, mm -mm. this issue all year or like you know I should say like big L libertarian so like the party super lame and um totally about as spineless as uh, can be in a time where it was the most difficult like this was this was um the thing that'll be most recognized in our lives going forward as like it, the defining moment, you know? And uh, I think it showed, it showed everybody's true colors and a lot of people didn't have very nice colors. Well, we had that same issue when we went into Afghanistan. We had a big debate at the national convention. Um, I tried to chair it and hear both sides respectfully. And I, I think, I think that was a, I think that it was a success in the sense that we actually, people, people were pretty cool, even though they were passionate. But the problem is, um, you know, if we as libertarians don't get an issue, then, you know, we can't really expect the rest of the country to. And, and many people at that debate and many of the people that said we should go into Afghanistan, it was self-defense, later have come up to me and said, oops, looks like that wasn't really self-defense. It was something else. And I, I think this is going to happen with the COVID issue as well, because I've heard libertarians say that it's our duty to get the vaccine because we got to protect their health. Well, you know what? <laughs> We're responsible for our own health. Mm -hmm. And if we expect someone else to protect us, you know, <laughs> We're going to be very disappointed because mm -hmm. no one's going to protect your own interests as much as you will. And part of that is not because people don't want to be protective of your interests, but it's just because, hey, you know, you know your interests better than anyone else. It, it, you're going to make the best decisions. I mean, you won't always be, quote, right. But if you gather up all your decisions and look at them, you'll you'll come out ahead um, that if someone else was making those decisions for you because they don't know your situation. I mean, it's just common sense, really. So we really need to take care of our own health. And, you know, if you believe in the vaccine, then what's the problem if somebody else doesn't take it? You're supposedly immune, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're supposedly protected. So why would you ask someone else to risk their health? Because vaccines, like all drugs, have side effects risk yeah. their health or your health it just and especially since there really isn't any benefit to you if you believe the vaccine works yeah i think that's the hardest thing for me that just having hearing the cognitive dissonance in everybody because we all like for example like everybody knows what insulin does and what it's for but and it's a great drug for the people that benefit from it but we don't give insulin to everybody just because it's good for a you know a certain percentage it would kill you if you <laughs> didn't need it so i look at it I, I don't understand how most people understand that concept when you bring up insulin but they can't understand that concept with vaccines and many other drugs but mostly this vaccine Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's partly because even medical doctors seem to have this idea that vaccines are pretty harmless. You know, <laughs> they just, it's a drug like any other.
other. In fact, it's a biological product, which on average, a biological product is going to have more side effects than a chemical drug, you know, it, just because you have to worry about the immune reaction on top of everything else. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't understand that. Um, but there has been a lot of um, what I'll call propaganda about how safe vaccines are. But no, they, they're like any other drug. They have side effects. In fact, that's why in the mid-80s, uh, the vaccine manufacturers were actually going out of business. There were only two left. And so they passed this. I don't think I talk about this in my book, but they passed, um, I don't recall what they called it, but a Vaccine Injury Act, which basically said there's no more liability for vaccine companies. No matter what they do, you can't sue them. Right. And the, the federal government will compensate people. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the taxpayer will compensate people who are harmed. And you know, that hasn't worked out very well either because they're, they're like many government agencies are simply denying um, a lot of a lot of cases. They won't even hear them. Mm -hmm. And that's because, again, they have a certain prejudice or they are running out of money. I mean, that they really are putting out a lot of money and still not compensating everybody who you know, has a claim, uh, I'd say a legitimate claim. Obviously, there's going to be false claims, too. But from what I can see, looks like there's a lot of legitimate claims that aren't even being dealt with. There are certain vaccines that they won't even consider an injury claim for. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. You know, they, they all have side effects. Mm -hmm. I mean, so again, like whether you're a libertarian or even like a left-leaning person who is opposed to the big banks getting bailed out, um, you know, other, like the auto industry getting bailed out, just all these different corporate bailouts. Um, what you kind of just described um, was a vaccine manufacturer bailout, and it's mm -hmm. just an ongoing one. It's, it's worse than even like a one-time thing, it's ongoing. Like we're still propping up that industry by, in the fact that they are they are not liable and then are they private companies and are they allowed I, to do what, I they, could not what they're doing if they're yeah. receiving so much taxpayer money well you know i guess in the covid situation they did but normally i think the only taxpayer money they're getting is if the government is mm -hmm promoting you know the vaccines and they did with covid and there are yeah. some vaccines i do believe that they do promote which is why like flu shots for example mm -hmm. i think i think that's one that they do promote although i i have to be careful because i don't know all the details on that so let me just say that right up front that's my impression and i haven't really researched it but certainly the covid vaccine has been you know subs heavily subsidized by the government and that's because, of course, they want everyone to take it. And, you know, it's really, as, as the more side effects become apparent, it's, it's pretty clear that there are populations that are vulnerable. And, and it's expected. You know, again, any, any drug, any vaccine, you're going to have complications. I don't care if it's the new technology or the old technology. Mm -hmm. So well, why would we not expect there to be problems? And, and you know, yeah, and technically, um, 
they're all kind of new technology, even the J and J, which I initially thought was a little bit more standard. I mean, technically the use of the, um, the Adeno or Adeno virus, that's not standard. That's not like, and so I'm a crazy person for having questions about these three, like technically two new technologies, but three new versions of it. And, um, the ones that are at least specifically authorized, I emphasize that word because again, they're not even, not that I need FDA approval to change my mind because I already know how corrupt a government body can be and is, and, and including the FDA, as is evidenced in your book very well, I'd say, um, just as part of the reason they're awful. Um, but they have not approved these vaccines. They have given them emergency use authorization, but even that's like super sketchy. Yeah, there's no long-term studies. I think the studies went out, what, two or three months? And I actually saw what Pfizer submitted to to the FDA. And, um, you know, they said they had like 190 people or something that Mm-hmm. they analyzed to get their 95% efficacy. Mm. Well, what they didn't say, except if you read this thing that the FDA had, uh, was that there were about 5,000 people that showed symptoms. And they had in this little report, the number that got placebo and that got the vaccine. Now, if you assumed those approximately 5,000 people all had COVID, and you looked at the numbers, the placebo versus the um, vaccinated, then the efficacy went from 95% down to something like 23%, which is what, you know, you kind of expect for a flu shot. (laughs) I mean, that's, I I thought that 95%, I was like, how can that be? That's, we've never had a flu shot that was that good. How can this be? And then I saw that and I went, well, that's Maybe it isn't ninety-five percent, <laughs> and now we're having breakthrough cases. People have been vaccinated, and of course we have that with the measles vaccine too. Most of the measles outbreak uh, involve people who have been vaccinated, and the reason, of course, is that not every person's body can mount the proper immune response. Uh, you know, when I say proper, proper for, you know, fighting it later on, mm-hmm. um, whatever reason. We don't understand that as much as we'd like to. And so, you know, there are breakthrough cases, whether it's measles vaccine, the COVID vaccine, whatever. So, you know, nothing's 100%, nothing's without risk. Um, So, you know, for me, my personally, I, even though I'm in that age group where (laughs) they say my chances are not very good, um, I decided not to get the vaccine because I felt like I was better off using all these other techniques. And now I'm really glad because one of the things that run in my family are blood clots. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But no long-term safety data, right? So I kind of waiting to see what happened. And now I'm really glad that I waited. Yeah. I mean, um, speaking of blood clots, I don't exactly know how it functions or exactly what happens, but my family also has a familial, like hereditary blood clotting disorder um, called like factor V leading. And um, mm-hmm. so sure enough, if you go to openvares.com and you can check out the 
bears reporting, not just of the COVID vaccine, but of previous vaccines. But um, surprise, the amount of um, responses and re adverse events reported there uh, for COVID-19 have way surpassed the total um, reports from all other vaccines, like since the inception of this, which was about the 80s or so, when they um, kind of created that act, right? And um, so anyway, so if you go to Open VAERS and you type in Factor V leaded, um, those people have Bell's palsy. So I'm really, I'm okay with like, I'm not, I'm really okay with like not having a paralyzed half my face among other issues yeah. that I'm sure are involved. And, yeah. you know, that, that's just one example. <sighs> yeah. Right, and you're probably in an age group where you're not, I mean, even if you got it, you're gonna, and you know, I feel like I would survive it too. I mean, I've, <laughs> I haven't gotten the flu in a long time, so back so long, I don't even remember how long it's been. So I figure, yeah, yeah my immune system must be doing something right on that level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say if, and, um, you know, if you have good health, metabolic health, um, immune health, like you support it daily, regularly, and get sufficient sunlight, activity. I mean, it's there's a bunch of simple things that you could do to improve your health, improve yourself. And none of those things were promoted this past year. And, you know, none of those things uh, need FDA approval or at least that you shouldn't, but like you said, I mean, and Jesse alluded to, like there is a, a further clamping down or another attempt at clamping down at something is simply, I saw parsley on the mm -hmm. left, like parsley. <laughs> it's something you grow in your garden. What's the FDA got to do with my parsley? Like, leave me alone. I don't, I don't know. Well, they came down on cherries and walnut growers too. <laughs> Because they, the cherry and walnut growers were citing scientific studies that certain compounds, which were high in cherries and walnuts, uh, were beneficial. And, uh, you know, that was considered um, making a medical claim. So they obviously had to take that down, which is crazy. It just, this is dumb. You know, it's dumb. What can I say? <laughs> in George Orwell's 1984, was there a Ministry of Health? <laughs> A long time since I read it. I don't remember, but uh, I, I feel like it wasn't it like it was. <laughs> it sounds well. You know, actually, your point though that you made it was really good. You know, instead of all this misinformation hype about the vaccine, this could have been a really important opportunity to say, "Hey, if you have high blood pressure, you're at more risk." You can get rid of the high blood pressure by losing weight, controlling your glucose a little bit. You know, I mean, all these things we could have, we could have promoted. You know, and and get healthy and <laughs> mm -hmm. go to your gym instead of yeah going to your gym. Yeah. Stay at <laughs> home and have ice cream delivered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could have been a whole different scenario. But of course, that's <laughs> that's that's not what it's about. You know, we know. As libertarians, we know that basically the government is a tool of special interest, but that's, you know, not everyone got that yet. Yeah. But, you know, I think uh, we do all have our work cut out for us, and it doesn't necessarily mean joining the Libertarian Party. Um, 
it means, I don't know, and I need to do this more myself too, but it's become increasingly harder to have these conversations with normal people or like the normies, right? Anybody who isn't kind of already to some degree on board, chances are you don't even have an opportunity to have like an in-person conversation with them anymore because I'm in Maryland and there's a lot of people that are still overly afraid and, and the business and industry I work in, I haven't seen most of those people in well over a year, like in, in, in person and face to face, like it's been zoom central mm. and, and like, I, it's not, you know, by my choice, it's by their choice. Like I would see anybody, I would have seen anybody all year, anybody who wanted to meet in person and be human. And, you know, it just strikes me as, and I get so frustrated thinking about how anti-human and anti-progress all of this is. It's like we, uh, Jeffrey Tucker did a great job in his book, um, Liberty or Lockdown, and uh, and it's from a column he wrote too, but he he talked about how um, the American Revolution happened during, the, uh, during a smallpox outbreak and, you know, soldiers in the camps were rubbing up on <laughs> rubbing themselves on other smallpox victims so that they could get it and inoculate themselves like so that it wouldn't wipe out the entire camp if it came upon them by chance it's uh, you know i mean we all lament um anybody who's sort of like quote unquote on the right you know we all might lament how this country is so far from where we started politically um and maybe ideologically but even on this like need to <laughs> preserve your own life and, and, and or I don't know, like, and, and really fight for that independence and that life come a long way. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's good you're doing this work because really that's what gets the word out. It really okay. helps. You know, you should both feel really good about that. <laughs> Well, thank you. And, you know, actually, Vixen, so maybe this isn't like one of our more aggressive <laughs> anti-government um, tirades. It, it, it all is, you know, it comes down to saving lives and science, you know, actual science, not the religious science that um, we've all been exposed to this year uh, on blast. But so, you know, this might be a good um, episode to share with your normie friends or anybody who's actually like uh, Dr. Rewart was alluding to alluding to earlier, who is very health conscious, health conscious and, um, you know, would be really, really upset if all of a sudden some of that empowering ability that they have to take care of themselves, whether it's through supplements, whether it's, you know, I, we wouldn't ever want to think about just how far some of these regulations could go. But imagine the government regulating how many minutes you're allowed to spend in the gym, you know, just something, I mean, they, they did this past year, you know, they locked down gyms, they closed us all down. So they regulated our gym time to zero. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I felt that. So, you know, it's not far fetched. We're not the crazy ones. <laughs> um, so it might be a worthwhile one to share listeners. Well, you know, the vaccine passport thing, that's, you know, if, and, oh. and if they could mandate vaccines um, or make them necessary for you to conduct your business and, and live your life, then, you know, they can inject anything they want in you. 
<laughs> and that's yeah. the end independence that we would have because it's it's actually very easy to control people if you can medicate them the way you want to mm -hmm. yeah i mean i won't even get started on what's in our tap water <laughs> um but yeah no again i'm not crazy we're not crazy um we just happen to prefer uh the responsibility of our own lives and health and safety than handing this off or you know reallocating it to people we don't know people we don't elect not that people that we do elect are you know necessarily trustworthy but all these people that work in the bureaucracy of the government that we never see that um you know can stay there for decades uh really hard to have them get fired they're nameless for the most part unless it's time for them to be thrown under the bus but again we already mentioned even if they get thrown under the bus, like Fauci might be getting thrown under the bus, he's the highest paid government worker there is. Like, really? so I, that's what, I, yeah, that's what has come out. I'm surprised. <laughs> I know, I mean, so that guy's gonna ride into the sunset even if his name does get tarnished. Like he's probably got, you know, a house on a remote island or something yeah. nice where it won't even matter how many people he's responsible for killing indirectly and this is a good argument for why government shouldn't fund research because exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I, yeah. so <laughs> i do have libertarians come to me from time to time saying well you know we wouldn't have all this research if the government didn't fund it well what kind of research are you funding <laughs> yeah. yeah the government's we i mean god bless Rand paul for <laughs> showing us uh, at the end of every year, basically, like just some examples of the government funded research and how useless it is at best. And it's probably honestly, we just don't see the harmful stuff. Like, I mean, again, this is a pod, you know, different podcast, different episode, but think about all the research that goes into weapons development. And again, that's not defense, that's offense, guys. So, you know, that's a, like I said, another, <laughs> another whole podcast but it, it's related mm -hmm. so yes. that government funded research like from printed fiat money like they are not accountable and they don't even seem to care mm -hmm. what the results are but we have to live in that in that world but i also right. think it's important just as like just as a nurse and when you're t you're talking about patients like patients for whatever reason don't feel like they should ask questions or push back, I guess, you know, against doctors or nurse practitioners, but they absolutely should. And it's really important that you know exactly what medicines you're taking, why you're taking yeah. them, what the side effects are. And, you know, if it, there might be contraindications for you to take those medications based off of any other type of disease processes you might be having. And these are things like, that people just don't think about at all. They just simply, the doctor says, I want to try this thing on you because you have A, B, and C symptoms and just call me. And I don't even think the doctors a lot of times even really know what they're prescribing sometimes or, you know, it might be just the pharmaceutical company, you know, sent, the, sent it over to their office that day so they want to try it. The big thing is, is that there's just not a lot of transparency, in my opinion, in the medicine, medical field. And nurses, a lot of times, it falls on us to educate patients, but 
you know, like you were saying earlier, Dr. Rupert, that, you know, we can't know everything. So patients have to do that research themselves. And as, as good libertarians, we probably need to start doing that ourselves and be an example of that. Yes. And like I said, bringing in people who are already immersed in prevention and mm-hmm. many ways of prevention that would, yes, I think it would help our whole movement. <laughs> we'd, right. we'd be healthier, you know, because we'd be learning from them and they'd be learning from us, hopefully. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and that is a way and a good area for us to lead by example. It's funny, actually, like low key regulators and feds listening jesse and i were kind of giving like based on things where we were we were devouring in terms of literature and um just information about ways that we could support our immune systems throughout this and so uh, tons of our internet friends came to us asking you know what do i need to do what do i need to take and we'd say well you know we've read and we've been taking X, Y, and Z, and we would suggest you do the same, you know, just, you know, do your research, but this is what's been working for us. And, you know, think, think about this, maybe some other options for yourself, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so I, and my family, like my uncle got COVID and of course, like, and another gripe I've had all year, and I I don't want to keep, you know, being a broken record, but one of the gripes I've had all year is that the normal prescription for COVID once you tested positive was good luck. You know, we hope we don't see in the hospital, but you know, if we see in the hospital, we'll see in two weeks and then we'll shove a, shove a ventilator down your throat. And, um, you know, just, but, but good luck, you know? And I mean, you know, if you had the flu, you'd be given something for the flu, but you test positive for COVID and you were told nothing. My boyfriend's asthmatic sister was told nothing. Like they, she didn't, you know, check her, um, get a, like re-up her prescription for her inhaler, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. If you're like me, I just go to the doctor and I just tell them what I want and they do it. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I already know what I need. <laughs> yeah. Again, maybe uh, people might need to be more like, you. yeah, Jessie. just get it. Um, give me a Decadron shot uh, right here, please. And I'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, just as a quick, um, quick, also worthwhile mention of, so here we are, you know, I love a good chance to bash the government and your (laughs) book, Death by Regulation, you know, gave me the opportunity to do so with you. But before that, um, the other book that you've written, um, again, before Biden decided that it was his duty to heal the world and heal the country, um, Dr. Ruart wrote a book called Healing Our World. And I think its basic premise was, um, you know, we libertarians are the ones that have the tools, the knowledge and um, the ethics to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to, if there's anything like you kind of have from that, Dr. Ruart, that I'd say kind of <laughs> encompasses all the things we've just been talking about, but anything you want to um, sort of leave for us and our listeners and would point uh, listeners to that book as well. Well, you know, the thing is, I think a lot of libertarians don't appreciate that really the solution to poverty is the non-aggression principle, you know, the libertarian ethic. And 
you know, back when, when I wrote Healing Our World, there weren't too many, this is 92, right? So there, oh, weren't, wow. mm-hmm. um, there weren't too many studies like there are today, but there were so many examples that I really wasn't aware of till I started writing the book. And basically all of our principles have been tested somewhere in some country at some time and found to be very effective. So I think even today, the 2015 edition of Healing Our World is still probably the most comprehensive compilation of how liberty works in the real world. And we want it to work in the real world because if it doesn't, then our our morality isn't quite right. You know, that's mm-hmm. how we tell if our morality is right, if it works in the real world. And so for me, uh, the pragmatic issues and the ethical issues are two sides of the same coin. And this is this is something I I get excited about. And I think if libertarians recognize this more, they would be able to, I think, defend our our principles in a way that people understand. And the biggest one, of course, is poverty. I mean, poverty today is a government creation. Mm-hmm. Even a lot of libertarians don't understand that, which is why I encourage people to um, read Healing Our World. And the 93 edition is actually free at my website. Um, my website got hacked recently, so we're still checking links. So yeah, if you if you go there, um, go, go to my free library, look for Healing Our World, the 93 edition. You can read it for free. Of course, you can buy the other one too if you want, but mm-hmm. if you have any problem with the website, be sure and let me know. <laughs> and uh, you, can find, uh, you can find out how to reach me pretty easily. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you go to my homepage, at the lower bottom right of the page, you see links to all my social media. So, you know, feel free to contact me through there. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely link to your hacked website. Was it the Russians? No. <laughs> I think it was just an opportunist. My, I should say that my... My website isn't as update as it should be. I've been doing a lot of these webinars when COVID hit, so I haven't really been posting those, but my social media is very up to date right now, so you, you'll enjoy that a lot more. <laughs> Keeping up with the times. I mean, I found you through Instagram, so yep. you know, that's, where, that's where, um, you know, speaking of, that's the best place to reach us. Um, uh, we're on Facebook, but you know, not active, uh, just there by default. Uh, Jesse's somewhat active on our Twitter, uh, Vixens Voluntary. Uh, Instagram is Voluntary Vixens. Um, and yeah, we're part of the MLGA network, uh, MLGA network.com <laughs> or <Yeah>. simpler is <laughs> simpler. Our website is voluntaryvixens.com. Uh, so I can't mess that up. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, Dr. Ruart, I'm very, very um, honored that you answered my Instagram uh, message and agreed to come on and spend so much time with us. Um, And I really look forward to continuing to watch your work and see if you ever get that uh, that COVID-related or vaccine-related book out. Um, I would be hard-pressed. I think we'd all be hard-pressed to find... um, you know, a better person to write that book. Oh, thank you. And of course, I appreciate you having me on. Like I said, the work you two are doing really lets people like me 
get the word out. So, you know, it's a very synergistic thing. And mm -hmm. so I hope you'll continue doing it. <laughs> Thank you. We, we plan on it. Um, also, uh, listeners, we've got some new merch and we'll link to that as well because that's super fun and it's a fun way to spread the word in a subtle way because um, I'm, I'm a subtle person, um, you know, by nature and, you know, that doesn't really help uh, spread the message too much, but you could be more like Jesse and get that F the vaccine uh, shirt that Maj Torre sells. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. But, um, you know, our strengths come in all, all shapes and sizes and forms. And um, yes. again, we're all, that's, that's how we're all going to get the message across. Somebody's going to be listening. So on that note, um, listeners, we'll catch you next time. But in the meantime, please keep it sane, keep it peaceful, and keep it voluntary.